Welcome to episode 39 of the Known Pleasures podcast. Today, we're talking with one of the founding members of China Crisis, Eddie London. We discuss their working with drum machines, synthesizers, fire and steel in the lead up to their first ever Australian concert, 40 years after the release of their first album. It's about time they came down. So sit back and witness the difficult shapes and passive rhythms of Eddie London from China Crisis. This is possibly the earliest interview I've ever done in my life. Sorry about that. We could have done it hours later if it suited you better. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. One of the things that strikes me about your background in, in Kirby near Liverpool, and I don't know whether you think of yourselves as Liverpudlians or as being from, you know, like a little bit separate because you are from Kirby, not Liverpool? Now very much Liverpool, I'd say. But at the time, at the beginning, we were on the outskirts with about probably 89 miles away from the city centre. And the city centre was very much a cliquey thing, you know, with with your Echo and the Bunnymen, teardrops, war heat, very much like an Eric's kind of scene and vibe and that. And we, we were always kind of on the outskirts that we didn't know any of the people. Personally, we'd sometimes go into Liverpool, go go to Eric to watch a couple of bands. I remember seeing the Bunny Men there. I remember seeing OMD there, funny enough. To be perfectly honest, I think that we at that time, we considered ourselves slightly separate from Liverpool. Were you considered a bit out of the scene, a bit provincial, or um, being that distance from the middle of things and th- that distance from Eric's, you know, the iconic venue, and whether you know they would have thought of you as being a little bit kind of separate to it as well. The funny thing is, we just we just seen a friend from Canada a few weeks ago come over to England. Um, oh no, actually, it was the Bunny Men have just played in in North America. They played in Canada and um, in the United States. Uh, a guy who we know over there said it was really funny. He said because when he started talking to uh, Ian to Ian McCulloch about us, that we just been over there. Ian was turning around saying to him, hey, Eddie's not even from Liverpool, Eddie's from Kirby, you know, so so it's like they didn't even accept us still. <laughs> you started life apparently as a post-punk band. I mean, that's the description I've seen of you in 79. Post-punk. That's what I've I've heard. I've never heard any of your pre-China uh, crisis stuff. But what, what were your big influences if you weren't part of that OMD, Bunnyman, Teardrops kind of thing? What were you listening to? I'm hearing Kraftwerk, but I'm happy for you to contradict me. Oh, no, no. We, we, we definitely were listening to them. We were just never accepted by them. As well. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> we were listening to them. Yeah, we li- well, we listened to like the OMG thing. We listened, to- we liked a lot of electronic music. Mm. Uh, so a lot of the Kraftwerk kind of stuff and that. Big David Bowie fans. And it was kind of different for us because we were from quite big families. I was like one of 10, Gaddy's one of six. So the influences were like, were huge, you know, and I'm the youngest as well. So like my elder sisters would listen to like, Motown stuff from Stevie Wonder to Marvin Gaye to Harold Mel, everyone, everyone. And then my brothers would be more into like the Bowie thing or, you know, Gary's fa- Gary was into a lot more prog stuff like uh, Emma Slake and Palmer and Yes and all that kind of stuff. So mm-hmm. when we met, we, we already had a kind of, you know, vast knowledge on, on music as a whole, really. And that was our biggest passion. 
was music. So I wouldn't say there's one particular influence with us. I think that's kind of what what makes us a little bit different than than the Bunny Men or or some of them other groups. Is you you can tell they're very like bandy kind of bands if if, if that makes sense. A bandy band. In in the sense of like the Doors or the Velvet Underground and that, you can almost identify the genre of music that they listen to. Mm. And I think with us, there was many different genres going on, many different genres. Well, obviously Liverpool was was a really incredibly interesting scene at that time. I mean, not just Liverpool, the northwest of England, but um, so many diverse and different bands that came out of there and, and stood the test of time. With your first album, I was I wanted to ask you about when you were recording it in uh, in 1881, I believe. Um, yeah. Did you get the sense then that the time was right for a shift in music, like a move away from the post-punk kind of angsty stuff into something a bit more melodic and a bit more reflective, like what I call or what's been called the new pop, like yourselves and Simple Minds and, and a lot of other bands that came through in around about 82? I definitely think you could sense it. In the UK, there was a big thing called, pr- pretty similar to what you're saying, actually, uh, but they called it New Romantic over here. Uh, I don't know what they, they did the same over in Australia, New Zealand and that. But it was called New Romantic and there was a massive movement going then, you know, the likes of Spando Valley and and Duran Duran and all that kind of stuff. Even though it was kind of poppy and a little bit more, I'd say, a little bit more elaborate than what the punk scene was. The punk scene really, without being disrespectful, because there were some brilliant, brilliant songs, was you could be the most kind of naive of uh, musicians in a way. You know, you don't even need to know like three chords and there you go, you've got a song. I think it started getting a lot more elaborate and a lot more complex uh, with other bands, with the Spandos and the you, you All of a sudden you start to get bands that could actually play, you know, that could play well. Mm. I think we kind of came through that side of it. We were very different in the way that we were never really fashion conscious the way the, the whole new romantic movement was going. A lot of it was like expensive videos and like a whole art movement. You've only got to look at like George and that boy George and everyone at that time. It was like a, a huge art movement with expensive videos, great sleeve designs, glamorous clothing. Uh, so it was a whole movement really. And we went, we never, uh, kind of got mixed up in that. I think most, much to the frustration of the record company, I think if they had their way, <laughs> the, they would have loved us to do that. But if you have a look back at us, we wouldn't even put ourselves on a record sleeve. For the first three albums, we weren't even on it. Even the fourth album, the What Price Paradise had like the big sunset and everything, but it actually did have photographs of us on the back of the vinyl, the back of the sleeve. We never actually showed ourselves. I think more in attitude with the, you know, that kind of grim up north kind of vibe. To it. You know, we, had, we, had, we had like the long coats on and we, we were never glamorous in that way as the movement went. I think Jim Kerr did say once, uh, well, not so long ago, last year or whatever, he, uh, he plays one of our tracks on the radio. He did this radio interview or something. And he plays one of the tracks. And he, he called himself sophisticated pop. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 I go with that. I go yeah, with that. Yeah, that, that was Jim's words. So. Yes, yes, I There's always been this interesting kind of tension between the pop and the intellectual side of the band. And I mean, the sort of obvious example of that is uh, naming 
both side one and side two of your first album, labelling them as difficult and entertainment, which is both hilarious and pretentious. <laughs> and it's too... Oh, God, yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of the things that we were getting from that time, I mean, you've got to remember we were young as well, and you're always influenced by the people who you love, aren't you? You always kind of aspire to be like the artists that you listen to, I suppose. At the time, we were very inspired by Brian Eno. That's where the, you know, the possible pop songs would come from because he'd have... You'd have like music for airports, possible whatever. I can't remember what it was now. Or music for films and all that kind of stuff. Possible music? Titles and that, what he was doing. And that's where we did the uh, typical shapes, possible pop songs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Volume, you know, volume one or volume two or whatever. And I think that was kind of inspired by the Brian Eno thing at the time, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. We were massive fans. It was kind of great listening to some of that stuff, some of the Brian Eno stuff. We were massive Talking Heads fans. You know, was a, he was a big chunk of our um, creativity at the time because he was producing the records by the people who we loved. Yeah, yeah. And he was making the records himself, which also we loved. So it was like a, it's a bit of a Todd Rundgren situation going on <laughs> with you know, I think, at the time. It was great. The Talking Heads influence was interesting, particularly early on. Yeah. Like the first two singles had maybe more of a Talking Heads kind of a feeling. Yeah, the rhythm, rhythm side of it. When Remain in Light came out... God, that just blew us away. We were absolutely amazed with him. Mm. We just thought it was like the best album ever made or something. Mm. And consequently, we'd never really been in the studio before African and White. African and White was the first time we'd ever entered the studio. And obviously Remaining Light, so that would be 1980. And Remaining Light had just kind of dropped. So that was like a huge, huge album. And all the great kind of percussive stuff going on with that, you know, it was from African rhythms and everything that was going on. Strange instruments, you know, that they were using, gueros and, you know, all, all kinds of percussive things that they'd be using on the records would sound absolutely fantastic to us. So when we started doing African and White, we, we just ended up hitting everything in the studio. We had like drumsticks, <laughs> we hit radiators, we hit the floor. We did, you know, mic everything up and try and get it as percussive as what we could, really. The idea behind that was purely the talking heads remaining lights, I'd say, to be perfectly honest, because they were really, really percussive. It was exciting. It sounded energetic and it sounded great. It was kind of strange because we would do things like that, which were like what you said, which were kind of energetic and like, you know, rhythmic and all that kind of stuff. But at the same time, we would do like huge ballads, like like uh, Christian or, you know, even the B-side to think of African White at the time was called Be Suspicious. So there was always this constant pushing and pulling really. And that's what I was saying before about the genre situation It's because we listen to so many different genres and so many different styles. Unlike bands like the Bunnymen, or even unlike OMG to that to that degree, where they are solely electronic bands, we were never like that. We always thought the song was king, and the song was the most important thing. And if it needed synths, it got synths. If it needed percussion, it got percussion. If it needed strings, it got strings. If it needed horns, it got horns. But the song came first. It wasn't the genre, if you know what I mean. It wasn't the style that we thought that came first. That's the only way I can explain it, really. I was actually going to ask you the question, Eddie, that at what point 
did you guys decide to use synthesizers and drum machines? But it's after your answer then, it sounds like you use kind of everything. And um, as yeah. you say, whatever worked with the song. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And that was that was literally from day one. Yeah. You know, from day one, it would be, my mother got us uh, our first synthesizer off a catalogue, you know, one of them mail order kind of things. <laughs> yeah. 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 And it was a similar one to what, uh, which is surprising you could get such a good synthesizer off a catalogue, believe it or not. <laughs> but it was similar to what, like, uh, OMD and, like, Depeche Mode and a lot of electronic bands were using. So yeah. we kind of used a lot of electronic from the beginning. But I, I, my main instrument was guitar. Gary was a bass player. We kind of dabbled with synths and we dabbled with us, other instruments and we dabbled with drum machines and that not really knowing what we were doing. At the first drum machines, like the Dr. Rhythm and all that, yeah. they were quite complicated to play, believe it or not, mm-hmm. because they weren't just done in like a 16-bar thing where you press the buttons and, you know, your kick drums on bar one, bar three, bar five, or whatever it might be. They were little programmable things, and a lot of it was done by accident. Yeah. You know, the beats that you got, it wasn't visually done. Like most drum machines now, you can they're quite really, really quite simple to use. That's off the rhythm in them days. I mean, the whole beats of African whites, the beginning, of the, when you're at the beginning, was done purely by accident, just by pressing loads of buttons and seeing what happened. <laughs> <laughs> don't tell anyone that. Yeah, don't go ruining the magic, don't ruin it. <laughs> that's, that's the truth. <laughs> Brilliant. Didn't know what we were doing. We just pressed a load of buttons and that beat came back and then we thought, oh, that's that, that way. That'll do. Yeah. <laughs> well, Brian Eno would, would totally approve of that. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So it was the synthesizer that you found in, in your mum's catalogue. Do you remember how much it cost? Oh, God, no. It probably would have been a couple of hundred pounds at the time. Probably more because everything was more expensive then. With everything, with technology being brand new, when new things would come out, when new synthesizers and that would come out. They were astronomical, the prices of them. So it would have been it would have been quite expensive at the time, at least 300 quid or something like that. But the thing is about it, it was monophonic, yeah. which meant that you could only play one key at a time. So you couldn't play any chords or anything on it. So consequently, for that first album, a lot of the stuff that you hear and a lot of the lines that are in there, because even I'd say for like the second album, a lot of the songs on the second album were perhaps written for the first album. It's just that we had so much stuff that got saved for the uh, Fire and Steel album. But a lot of the stuff, you know, all that doom, 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 doom. Yeah, they were yeah, all yeah. done because you could only use one finger at a time. Mm. So we kind of come up with some bass lines or some melody lines and that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, so in many ways, uh, the restrictions of the instrument actually helped you in many ways because you never overcomplicated things. Absolutely. You, you had to you had to do, you yeah. know, what was what was in its capability really. Mm-hmm. And that's what's yeah. so great about um, that your first album was yeah, so sparse. Yeah. yeah, it was kind of strange. But yeah. um, but a good fun way of working. I was going to ask a question. I don't know whether Gary might have been better for this, but um, in my first band in the 80s, well, actually, I had a band which consisted of a couple of members that I stole from Mark's band, but um, we decided to uh, perform African and White. And I realised recently, I went online and just to check 
if I was singing the right words. And I don't think I was. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, there are two different versions online. One is in the chorus, you say, life is a fever we create. And there's also life is a fever in Israel. Um, I used to sing life is a fever, isn't it? <laughs> but, Good enough. So you sang none of the above. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I sang none of the above. But uh, I was wondering whether, whether I could finally find out what it is you were singing in the chorus. Israel. It's Israel. It is Israel. Okay. It is Israel. Life is a fever in Israel. At that time, every time you turned on the news, it, it was uh, certainly in the UK, probably the same in Oz and that. But it was, uh, you know, the PLO, Yasser Arafat, yeah. everything. It was like, it was the height of like uh, aggression between them, between them two nations and everything. And uh, it was just all over the news. It was just everywhere. You couldn't escape it. At the same time, you turn on the news. Mandela was still in jail. Apartheid was still rife, you know, obviously. So these were all the things that we were getting off the, from the news items at that time. It was all uh, basically the world's atrocities, really. I mean, obviously, African and white, the sentiment is really, really simple and plain. Mm. You know, it, it, it's anti-apartheid song, really. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and we tried to say the same with the life of a fever in Israel yeah. uh, aspect of it. It was the, it, the same thing was going on there. Mm. They, them two nations were seriously at war as well, you know. Mm. So um, the whole fact that, you know, we could be in the 1980s and apartheid and that still existed was kind of mind-blowing. It's mm. kind of something like from the slave trade from, you know, the 1800s or whatever. It seemed like so far behind, didn't it? You know, do you know what I mean? It was like such a thing from the past, I believe. So mm. it was good. It was a good thing to do. I think we were the first band or something to use Africa in the title since, since, uh, it's know, <laughs> if I had a hammer or something or, you know, whatever, whatever them, them 60s. Yes. Yeah. You know. What about Toto? Yeah. Well, yeah. Toto. <laughs> well, after you. I think Toto was, was I later. I think Toto came later. <laughs> Toto was later. Yeah. He was. It's a good Toto song too. <laughs> I stand corrected. I stand corrected. Sorry about that. Can I it was just, probably someone. It was probably someone like Nina Simone or someone like that. <laughs> yeah, she was possibly. quite political, wasn't she? Just before we go, and I just also want to mention that I think the bass line of African and White is just the best. Oh. One of the first bass lines I learned to play. It was really good. That's nice. That's funny actually because we played last week in the UK. Do you ever remember a band called Space? Yep. Oh, yes, yep. yeah. Yep, sure. From Liverpool. Well, we played with them last week, and the singer out of them come up to us and said, the bass line, the bass line, African White's the best bass line. <laughs> That's exactly what you just said. That was only last week, so that, that was quite funny. Timeless, timeless, yeah. Timeless. And, and regarding lyrics, it, it, it's interesting you describe the African and White lyric along those lines because I get the impression that um, the lyrics are quite impressionistic in general rather than being really specific in terms of trying to communicate political meaning or that, that kind of thing? I think way back in the day, they were a lot more direct with African and white, uh, politically-wise, I'd say. African and white and, like, working with fire and steel, obviously we had Thatcher's government here and there's a Christian who's kind of very direct as well and kind of anti-war kind of song. The more you write and all that kind of thing, the kind of more obscure you become ever so slightly because, for one, 
you're probably writing about people that are close to you that you love and all that, and you don't really want them to know that you're writing about them. So yeah, you kind of yeah. you kind of shroud your lyrics in a way that mm-hmm. uh, you know you're not turning around saying to someone, "I hate you" or whatever. <laughs> you know, you, you, you kind of disguise it ever so slightly. And I think you, you get a lot more possibly poetic and all that. It, it's a weird thing, isn't it? Because uh, sometimes the beauty of songwriting is the naivety, mm-hmm. is the way you just say it the way it is. Yeah. And then the more experienced you become, you kind of lose that. You kind of try and be a bit too clever about it, I think. And it just gets all a bit, you know, it gets a bit poetic and a bit nice and a bit, but you don't actually say, you say it as it is. I remember a group from where you're from uh, called, you, you'll obviously know them, called Midnight Oil. Do you remember yes, that? Yes, absolutely. Yes, of course. Absolutely. Uh, and they were just, they were just like saying exactly the way it is. <laughs> <You know? laughs> like, this is. It was almost like a political statement, you know, where <laughs> every time the, the lyrical content, you know, it was just so like bang, straight, honest. What it says on the tin, that's what we're saying. <laughs> that was them for sure, for sure. <laughs> Yeah. Do we have time for one more, Graham? I, th- I think we have time for one more question. I've yeah. just got a quick question about uh, your third album, Flaunt the Imperfection, obviously produced yes. by uh, Steely Dan's Walter Becker. Were you shocked that someone from, you know, FM rock royalty, like a band like that, wanted to work with you? Because there's this huge disparity in kind of fame and everything else. Like, this guy's, like, huge. And he goes, I want to work with China Crisis. Was that a big shock to you when you heard that? God, yeah. Well, I don't know whether you know how that all came about. That came about because we were on tour with Simple Minds in the United States. And we went for like a lunch and a meeting. This is with the album Working With Fire and Steel, the second album. We went for a lunch and meeting with Warner Brothers Records, who we were on at the time over in over in America. And the, the heads of A&R guy there turned around and, and said to us, um, who's going to do your next album? Who's going to do the third album? Who would you like, you know, to, to do it? And kind of jokingly, I said, uh, Gary Katz, who, who produced, I said, we'd like to work with Gary Katz, mm. who produced all the Steely Dan stuff. And it was him who come back and said, oh, oh, hang on a minute, we might be able to do better than that. He said, we've actually got Walter Becker on our books. You know, we'll see what he's doing. They got in touch with Walter, who at the time was living in Hawaii, taking an easy time out of Steely Dan and everything. Got in touch with him, and Walter's like a massive, or was a massive record collector as well. He's, he's a huge, huge music fan, mm. as well as being, you know, an incredibly genius musician and everything. At first and foremost, he was a music fan, I'd say, at heart. And basically, when they got in touch with him, he said, I've actually got the album working with Fire and Steel. He said, <laughs> he went out and bought, you know, it's like, he said, I love this album, it's a great album and everything. I'd love to come and meet them. And he flew over to the UK, met us, and then the rest is history, really. We got to do the album with him. We got on really well with him. Well, we, did, we actually did two albums with yeah, the next one. Yeah, yeah. Entirety of All of Wars. Mm. So he'd never, he'd never done that in his life besides uh, stealing down. So kind of quite privileged to, you know. Quite an honour. Really. And around about the time you were thinking of who you were going to record that third album with, 
music was becoming a bit generic production-wise in terms of like a classic 80s kind of shiny electronic sound. Was it appealing to you that uh, apparently he'd, uh, Walter had never heard of Trevor Horn? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think there were whales of the heads of Trevor Horn. But, uh, <laughs> it's funny, isn't it? Because uh, like I said to you before, at the beginning of the conversation when we were talking about uh, the new romantic thing and I was saying about the record company, was really quite distraught about us not wanting to show ourselves on record sleeves and all mm. that and not wanting to do, you know, the big expensive videos or wear all of, you know, the clothing that you were supposed to wear. It was very similar. The record company were very distraught about us going to work with Walter Becker. I remember them saying to us at the time, they thought he was like a washed-up 70s rock thing, you know, that, that had gone through drug addiction and gone through, you know... And we were going, now the genius, you know, he's absolute genius. Steely Dan had just made the best records that audibly and sonically are just the best sounding records that will last, you know, for the years. If you put a record on now, it still sounds as fresh today as what it probably did do when they recorded it. Mm-hmm. You know, just the techniques and everything they used for recording was second mm-hmm. to none. I, I do remember the record company not being, well, the British record company, the American record company, you know, they can't <laughs> I love it, it. obviously, yeah. with, with, the, with the connection that they had. But uh, but the British record company, very, very against it. They wanted us to go with someone a lot more poppy. I'm trying to think of some of the names that were bantied about at the time. But it was the perfect choice for us. We, we were right in the end because that was like a million-selling album, mm-hmm. you know, and, and our big hits off it. So we, we were absolutely right to stick to our guns and go with Walter. Mm, massive, you know? yeah. But I think I think given it a choice, you know, the, the new younger A&R kids that were coming into Virgin at the time probably didn't want us to go with someone like that. We just had to dig our heels in, really. <laughs> well, anyway, um, Eddie, thanks very much. It's been a real honour talking to you. Just to let you know, the three of us will be coming to see China Crisis on the 2nd? 2nd of December, yeah, in Sydney here. We are. Yeah. Yep, we'll be there. That is brilliant, yeah. And we're, we're, we're glad you we're made so it. We're so looking forward to it. It's, it's incredible. You know, we've never been before. We know. Yeah, we yeah, do yeah, know. Yeah. <laughs> we yeah. know very well. So, I mean, it, that, that is incredible in itself. It's just like every time we were going to go, uh, gremlins, something always happens. Something always happens. It's a long um, way. <laughs> for your Australian listeners, I mean, the, the, the funny one funny time, the coach was literally outside the door to take us to the airport to go. Uh, and Gary's dad took a massive heart attack. And literally while the coach was, was outside, so we just went, oh my God. So, I mean, every, everything that could possibly go wrong was going to uh, Australia, New Zealand, uh, has, has gone wrong. So, fingers crossed. <laughs> we've, only, we've, only got, we've only got 10 days to go before we step on the plane. So, get on the coach. Wrong, yeah, look, up, look after yourself, Eddie. Yes, look after yourself. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you very much for that. Thanks we, very much for we, your time. We appreciate it. We'll see yeah, you at the gig. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye.